supporting human conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim but change never came Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we air excerpts of a recent talk by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges. I had the honor of hosting Chris Hedges for a KPFA Project Censored event November 18th this year. The discussion topic was Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. Today on the Project Censored Show, an hour featuring Chris Hedges. Stay with us. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like ominous. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Earlier this year, November 18th, I had the honor of hosting Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges for a KPFA Project Censored event via Zoom. Chris Hedges was talking about his recent book, Our Class Trauma and Transformation in an American prison. On today's Project Censored show, we share excerpts of Chris Hedges' talk on our class. Let's get to this evening's main event with Chris Hedges. His latest book, Our Class, lays bare the cruelty of the American penal system. Describing mass incarceration as the civil rights issue of our time, Hedges notes that the US imprisons a larger percentage of its black population than did apartheid South Africa. Since 2013, Chris Hedges has taught courses in the college degree program offered by Rutgers University at East Jersey State Prison and other state prisons. Having read a number of plays with Hedges, his incarcerated students wrote a play of their own titled Caged, which ran for a month in 2018 to sold out audiences at the Passage Theater in Trenton, New Jersey. Our class is a chronicle of a remarkable creative process, exploring the artistic and personal discoveries that emerged. Hedges brings to life the remarkable stories of the incarcerated men who speak for themselves. Alice Walker says of Hedges' book, this book could change everything. It could make graspable why today's prisons are contemporary slave plantations. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, a foreign correspondent for 15 years working for the New York Times as bureau chief in the Middle East and the Balkans. He holds a master's degree of divinity from Harvard University and is the author of a dozen books, including War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, a National Book Critics Circle finalist. He's also author of Empire of Illusion and America, The Farewell Tour. I continue to use many of Hedges' articles and books in my classes, and they continue to open the eyes of another generation of young Americans. Chris Hedges is also host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show On Contact, and has taught at Columbia, Princeton, New York University, and of course, as we learn again this evening, he's taught college credit courses through Rutgers University in the New Jersey prison system. Chris Hedges currently writes for SheerPost.com, the site of journalist Robert Shear. Please welcome the one and the only Chris Hedges. Thanks, Mickey. This book is different from, I think, all of my other books, with maybe the exception of my first book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, which was a meditation on the culture of war born out of the 20 years that I worked as a war correspondent 
in Latin America, five years in Central America, seven years in the Middle East, and three years covering the war in the former Yugoslavia and Kosovo. And there were moments in that book where I couldn't write. I just sat and wept. It was a painful process. And this book, too, was perhaps written more from the heart than from the head. I had long thought about writing a book about the American prison system, but was unsure how to do it. I had started teaching in prisons in 2010 when I had just finished Empire of Illusion. My neighbor, Celia Chazelle, who was the head of the history department at the College of New Jersey, was teaching and recruiting professors to go into the prison system, teach semester-long courses, and we would have to buy the books for the students. And then if they completed the coursework, we would print out certificates that said that they had finished the course, but it had no academic validity. And this was done to help them through the parole process when they went before the parole board. And then in 2013, Rutgers started a wonderful program, NJ Step, which offered first associates and then eventually BA degrees to students in the New Jersey prison system. So in 2013, I'd already been teaching about three years, uh, mostly in a, a youth correctional facility. So the students would be between the ages of 18 and 28. But this was in East Jersey State Prison, a maximum security prison. The students were older, their 30s, their 40s. They had spent often significant amounts of time in the prison, sometimes decades in the prison. We incarcerate children. I had one student in my class, Lawrence Bell. His parents had died. His father had died when he was two. His mother had died when he was nine. And after the death of his mother, he was an orphan on the streets of Camden, New Jersey, per capita, the poorest city in the United States, living in an abandoned house without electricity or running water at 14, weighed 90 pounds, functionally illiterate. And he was dragged into a Camden police station and three detectives browbeat him uh, late into the night to sign a confession for a crime, a murder and a rape that he didn't commit. And he got to the trial. And when he heard what was in the signed confession, attempted to protest and was slapped down by the court and sentenced as an adult so that he was not eligible to go before a parole board. And that doesn't mean he's going to be released. That means to ask the first time around to be released until he was 70 years old. So there were students who the bulk of their lives had been spent incarcerated. And in this class, I was teaching drama. So I was teaching Amiri Baraka's great play Dutchman, August Wilson's Fences, Joe Turner Come and Gone, Miguel Pinheiro, the brother-sister plays, which are brilliant. I found out very early in the course that my students had very little familiarity with drama as a medium. Uh, of course, they come from marginal communities and don't have $150 to buy a ticket to see Fences uh, in New York. And so just on a whim, it was not in any way premeditated, I suggested that they write dramatic dialogue about their own lives as a way to familiarize themselves with how drama works, because almost everything is conveyed, of course, through dialogue. Well, what I didn't know is that one of the students in the class, whose nickname was Kabir in Arabic, that means big, and he was a lot of big guys in the class, but he was very big. 
had listened to me on the Pacifica station, WBAI in New York, and recruited the best writers in the prison. These were poets and, and novelists. And so I took those scenes home, all handwritten on lined paper, all carrying that kind of musty smell of the prison back to my house in Princeton and read through them. And there were about a half dozen that were just stunning. And this happened after a couple of weeks of collecting these scenes. And I showed them to my wife, Eunice Wong, who was an actor, professional actor, a graduate of Juilliard, and said, you know, I think I'm going to help them write a play. So without getting their permission, I, within the prison system, I can add classroom time if students need remedial help. So I signed all 28 students up for remedial help. So I had another day each week, two days a week, each session, a little over two hours and proposed this to them, that, that we would write this play, which they embraced. And that began an amazing process. Again, it was completely organic and unforeseen because what they were writing about, the trauma, the grief, the suffering, the loss, the injustice, the humiliation, all of these things that they face are very rarely expressed within a prison. In a prison, you build these kind of emotional walls to protect yourself because any kind of vulnerability, any a sign of weakness makes you prey within a prison environment. And this is part of the whole distortion of long-term prisoners who are forced within that environment to essentially never express or internalize a range of emotions, which makes it very hard for them, especially if they've been incarcerated for a long period of time, to adjust once they are released. And so they would write scenes and they would get up in front of the class to read those scenes, all of which were autobiographical and often very emotional. I mean, I had, you know, these big guys, prison tattoos, and they call the 400 Club. So it's all those guys who bench over 400 pounds and their hands were shaking, their eyes were tearing up. In some cases, they couldn't read it. And all of these stories just poured out of them. And what was so powerful was that that storytelling, it's what uh, August Wilson, a playwright I love very much, a constant theme in Wilson is hearing the voices of your ancestors. So we had read Joe Turner Come and Gone, Joe Turner Come and Gone. Wilson wrote those cycle of plays a decade apart. This one was set, I think, 1910, but the early 20th century in a boarding house in Pittsburgh, where most of his plays are located. And it was about a character who was coming up from the South. I've also taught Leon Litwack in the prison, who wrote two very fine books, uh, one, uh, Ben in the Storm on Reconstruction, but then Trouble in Mind comes from a Muddy Waters song about Jim Crow, the terror of Jim Crow in the South. And so there's that great book, Slavery by Another Name. So what happens after emancipation is that they criminalize black life. The people are picked up for non-crimes, just as they are today, by the way. I mean, in Ferguson, I think it's 30% of the county budget depends on fines. So they just invent non-crimes. My favorite being obstructing pedestrian traffic, which means standing too long on a sidewalk, or Eric Garner being choked to death over selling loose cigarettes. Though so actually, the day Garner was murdered by the New York City police, he wasn't selling loose cigarettes. So on these spurious charges, like vagrancy, they are put in coffles and were marched down in the river and sold off for a small fee to plantation owners 
and would work for terms of like seven years, five, seven years with a very high mortality rate because you had, I mean, for instance, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the largest slave trader in the South before the Civil War. And of course, a brutal general who carried out a massacre of black troops at Fort Pillow and one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, he was manning his old plantation with convicts. But because they weren't expensive, because these slaveholders didn't have to pay for these human bodies, they were dying in droves, especially in the turpentine camps in northern Florida. We don't know the mortality rate was very high. So Wilson writes about uh, this character who had been seized, separated from his wife and daughter. He comes north looking for his wife, of course, bearing that trauma and anger. And there's a conjurer in the play who talks about finding your song and that only when you find your song can you be whole. And what he means is essentially getting in touch with your own past, not the past, the fictional past that is told to you by the dominant white majority, but the actual past that they attempt to erase. And that process of finding your song very much became part of the process of writing the play itself. I served as kind of the editor. I mean, I had to, everything had to be approved by them, but I would meld scenes together or look for holes to glue to try and create a narrative. We loosely based the play around a true story of a guy who had been picked up, who I knew in Elizabeth, New Jersey, for a crime he didn't commit. And he was the only wage earner in the house with his mother was quite ill with cancer and his younger brother who was in high school who he had kept off the streets and of course their world disintegrates once he's incarcerated and his brother goes out into the streets to hustle to get money for a lawyer and he's actually it turns out that the lawyer is able to expose the mendacity of the prosecutor and the anomalies of his sentence and get him out although the lawyer call it a Haley Comet experience in the American judicial system. So we kind of loosely based it on that story. But I remember one night saying, okay, everyone's got to go and write a scene, a conversation they remember with their mother. And at the end of the class, one of my students, Timmy, comes up and said, well, what if we're a product of rape? And I said, well, Timmy, that's what you've got to write. So next week he comes in and he has written the account of the phone conversation he had with his mother from the county jail. And of course, he was from Patterson, New Jersey. This is, was from his own experience. He was in a car with his half-brother and there was a weapon in the car. The car was stopped and searched by the police and they found a weapon. Now, if no one in the car would take ownership of the weapon, then everyone in the car would be charged with a weapons possession. And it was his half-brother's gun and Timmy told the police officer that it was his weapon. And the conversation that he wrote uh, with his mother from the county jail is, it doesn't matter, Ma, I was never supposed to be here anyway, and you have the son you love. So he goes to jail to give his mother, quote unquote, the son that she loves. I had another student write about, about five years is when relationships begin to disintegrate, including with your family. He writes about a visit from his wife and small son, and his small son keeps speaking about Uncle Jimmy. And it soon becomes apparent that his wife has seen someone else. Many of my students write their family and their spouses and their girlfriends and 
tell them to think of them as dead if they have long sentences and just to get on with their lives. I mean, even to the point of not visiting. And so he asked his wife, he understood, he said, I, I understand, but please bring my son so I can visit my son. And I asked him, when was the last time you saw your son? He said, that was the last time I saw my son. And I said, how old is your son? He said, 24. So there was incredible psychic damage that they were struggling with. And when I began the play, there was a natural kind of reticence, especially at that kind of public exposure of emotions and experiences that you didn't share inside a prison. And so I asked how many people want parts, and seven people initially said they wanted parts. And as this process progressed, all 28 students wanted parts. So we had 28 parts in the play. And it was about the cages, both the invisible cages outside the prison walls and the very physical cages inside the prison that keep them trapped. All of the institutional mechanisms that work to keep the poor poor. Dysfunctional schools, dysfunctional courts, 94% of the people in our prison system never get a jury trial. This is by intention. Michelle Alexander correctly has pointed out that if everyone had a jury trial, the system would crash. It's not capable of giving people a jury trial. And the way that the American court system functions is to coerce people into taking plea deals. And they do that by stacking a variety of charges against you that both the police and the prosecutor know are false, but they're bargaining chips. And the saddest kind of revelation for me in the prison is that those who have the longest prison sentences are invariably those who went to trial and didn't accept the plea deal. And they're almost always the ones who didn't commit the crime for which they were charged. And they naively believe that because they were innocent, the court system would validate that innocence. And we have to remember that sentences in the United States are three or four times longer what they are anywhere else in the world. And that goes right back to the early 1990s, and in particular, the 1994 Omnibus Crime Bill pushed through the Senate by Bill Clinton and Joe Biden when they had decided to wrest back the law and order issue from the Republicans. That's where we get the militarized police, these internal armies of occupation. That's where we get the three strikes your outlaw. Biden at the time, Naomi Mirakawa writes about this in her book, bragged about expanding death penalty crimes. Uh, there used to be a handful, one or two federal death penalty crimes. I think he got it up to 51. This was part of his campaign rhetoric. Half of my students or more would not be in the prison, but for Biden and Clinton. And so there was the rise of this carceral state, which I don't think accidentally paralleled the deindustrialization of the country. My last book, America, the Farewell Tour, was influenced heavily by Emil Durkheim's book on suicide, where Durkheim asks, what is it that drives individuals or groups to carry out acts of self-annihilation, self-destruction? And he says it's the rupturing of social bonds. That process by which you are integrated have a place, a sense of worth within a society. When those are taken from you, then you engage in self-destructive behaviors. And I think now we're seeing this writ large throughout the country.
That book essentially looks at those behaviors, the opioid crisis, sexual sadism, gambling, suicide, the opioid crisis, all of those pathologies that have gripped the United States. But those communities that endured this before the white working class were the uh, what Malcolm X called our internal colonies, these formerly industrial urban enclaves. And so when you rupture those social bonds, those bonds function as a form of social control because they give you an investment within the society. Once those social bonds are gone, then you need the coercive force of militarized police and mass incarceration in order to maintain control. And that's what's happened. And that's why mass incarceration will not be ended until we reorient our society to invest in people rather than in the carceral state. What was moving as we went through this process about writing the play was that it soon became apparent that the fundamental theme was radical love, was about sacrifice both inside and outside the prison for the other. There's a prison code, which is kind of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, revenge-driven code. But the students wanted it clear. There were two things they insisted on. One, there's a corrections officer who has a part in the play, and they insisted that he be black. They didn't want him to be white. Most of my students are black. They insisted that he be not white. They didn't want that easy stereotype. And the other thing that they argued passionately about is that the code, the prison code, that is honored more in the breach than the observance. The scene ends with the murderer of the young brother of the main character, Omar, who's in the prison, coming into the prison. And of course, the prison code says that he has to get a homemade knife or a shank and kill him. And he's headed to the mess hall to do this, the mess hall in the yard being the two most dangerous places in a prison. And he's stopped by an older prisoner. Again, this entire scene was autobiographical. It was written by one of my best writers in the class, Boris Franklin, on his own experience, where he had stood outside a mess hall to stop someone going in with a shank from killing another prisoner. And when the play in 2018 was mounted at the Passage Theater in Trenton, and it was sold out every night because, of course, mass incarceration tragically is quite familiar to most people who live in Trenton, New Jersey, he took the part. He, he, they were all equity actors except for Boris. And I noticed that when they had that scene, he was quite physical. He kept pushing the character, Omar. I asked afterwards why. And he said, because if he didn't hand me the shank, I would have to start a fight. So we would both go to lockdown. And that replicates, of course, a moment of his own life in prison. We couldn't perform the play in prison. There was too much in it. We had an old radical. I had gone and taped about six hours and typed up the transcripts with a former member of the Black Liberation Army, Audrey Latulo, because we wanted that historical memory in the play. When Audrey went into the prison, I mean, people forget that solitary confinement in the United States was resurrected in the early 1970s for black radicals because they didn't want them raising the consciousness of other people in the prison. So when Audrey went to prison, he went immediately into solitary confinement where he spent 22 years. He never committed any infraction in the prison at all. But that's where those black radicals went to isolate them. And so Audrey became a very important character in the play reflecting on the history of mass incarceration and and black resistance 
when Boris got out, Boris was my first student to get out. Well, let me go back to what we did at the end because we couldn't perform it, especially because of the things Audrey said that would have angered the corrections officers and the administrators. And of course, the retribution would be taken out against my students. And so I invited Cornell West and the great theologian who we lost a year or two ago, James Cohn, to come in and be our audience. Well, this electrified the class. And when I came to the prison with Cornell and James, we got to the lobby and the warden or the administrator was there. And he said, you're not going to your classroom. You're going to the chapel. And we waited in the chapel and my class was brought in. And they, of course, immediately understood what was going on, that this wasn't going to be a private reading in a classroom. The hierarchy of the prison, all of whom were there, were going to listen to every word. And so the entire group of students huddled. And I desperately wanted to hear what they were saying in the discussion, but I consciously walked to the back of the chapel so I couldn't hear, because at that point it was their play. They owned it. And they decided what parts they could read and what they couldn't. And in many ways, you can't replicate that power because people were reading about their own experiences. So it may not have been dramatically or even linguistically polished, but it tapped into an emotional power that I don't think any actor could replicate. When Timmy, for instance, read his scene, as soon as he finished about that phone call, he disappeared. And I asked someone, where's Timmy? And they said, I think he's in the bathroom. And I went down to the men's room and found him huddled in the corner, sobbing and shaking and weeping. And that last night was quite poignant. I think that we were all in mourning. This had created a sacred space within this classroom where people had found the courage to be vulnerable in an environment where the vulnerability exacts a tremendous price. It built bonds among all of us, which exist to this day, as finally more and more students are getting out. I went back in. I had one more class after the night that James and Cornell came, and I went in, and both James and Cornell spoke to the students afterwards. And as soon as I walked in, one of my students stood up and said, you may have seen that I've been crying. I was crying last night. I've been in this prison system since 1987. He has life without parole. And the night that Dr. West and Dr. Cohn came to speak to us is the only happy night I've spent in prison. And at the end of that class, everybody spontaneously came up and signed the front of my script and left. And I, as I left that prison, I knew I carried their song, as August Wilson would say, and that I had to make that song heard. It was a five-year process to make it heard. Fortunately for me, Boris got out early, and he and I devoted hundreds of hours to consolidating characters, a very painful process because every time we cut a line or merged a line, we heard the voice of the student who wrote it. And we worked with Eunice and we worked with a great theater director in New York City called Jeffrey Wise, who funded workshops for it. So it's very helpful when you're processing a play so we can see it, act it out, hear it, hear critiques, and then go back and work on it again. And as I said, it was eventually performed in 2018 and published by Haymarket Books. So for me, the book is different from most of my other books, which are kind of cultural criticisms, if you want to call them that. My brother said he liked it because my brother's a good capitalist. My brother said he liked it because I didn't quote a lot of people he hadn't heard of. It's raw. It is their story. And 
it uses that process of building the play in their words, of course, to talk about the horror of mass incarceration and poverty, what we have done by casting these people aside from the society and their own struggle for worth and dignity and meaning. So I'll stop there. We can do questions, but my heart is kind of on every page of this book. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we share excerpts of a talk by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges. He spoke with us November 18th via Zoom for a KPFA Project Censored event. We'll hear more and also questions and answers after this brief musical break. We're speaking with Chris Hedges this evening, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. We're talking about his latest book. It's Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison from Simon & Schuster. We have a few questions here, Chris Hedges, so let's go ahead and jump in. Ryan starts by saying, Chris, what can ordinary citizens do to take effective action against the for-profit prison system? And additionally, do you have a recommended reading list? I'm assuming that that means a reading list that might be about these issues. Well, that's a good question because the for-profit prison system is not confined to for-profit prisons, which ICE uses. But everything within a prison is privatized now. All of the services of any prison, state or federal, is privatized. So the food service is Armart, which has repeatedly served rancid food that's caused widespread food poisoning within all sorts of prisons across the country. Global Tellink, which gouges prisoners and their families to communicate by phone. And remember, especially if you're a parent, this is the only mechanism you have to talk to your children. JPay, which is the money transfer service. Commissary is privatized. Under the 13th Amendment, slavery is legal within a prison. So my students make $28 a month, about 22 cents an hour. In prisons like Georgia and Alabama, they don't make anything. They, they are not paid at all. And yet these prices, I got the 1996 list of commissary prices and the one today, they've all gone up by over 100%. We're talking about basic items, deodorant, toothpaste, I mean, really basic items, coffee, ramen noodles, which my students live on, given the food that they have to eat. So this has become a multi-billion dollar a year industry. Their lobbyists are the ones who make sure that prisons are little more than warehouses. That's why we have a 76% recidivism rate within five years, not only because all of those programs that might help people reintegrate within a society have been extracted from prisons, but also because of all the hurdles people face when they get out. Their records preclude them from unemployment. They can't get public assistance, food stamps, public housing. They, of course, bear, especially if they've been in for a long time, the emotional trauma of being incarcerated. All of their relationships, including often familial relationships, no longer exist. They have no support system on the outside. And then we also have to acknowledge that increasingly 
those who are released are heavily in debt. Now this comes from fines. When you are in prison, you are often stacked with thousands of dollars of fines. I was speaking earlier about Lawrence Bell, who went in at 14. Amazing guy, like so many of my students. He decided that despite everything that life had dealt him, he was just going to be the best person he could be within those circumstances. And I taught a history class. It was called Conquest. We read Open Veins of Latin America, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and C.L.R. James's great book on the Haitian liberation movement, Black Jacobins. And at the end of the class, when everyone left, and he was always one of my A students, he said, uh, I know I'm going to die in this prison, but I work as hard as I do so that one day I can be a teacher like you. Lawrence, fortunately, because of Miller, the Supreme Court ruling on sentencing juveniles as adults, got a resentencing hearing through a very wonderful public defense attorney who spent two years doing it and was resentenced. But even then, because he had no family, they won't release you unless you have an address. So we had to raise the money to get him an apartment. And then my garage was filled with all sorts of household items donated by formerly incarcerated. And he got out, he uh, finished his degree at Rutgers and graduated summa cum laude, and is now working as a community organizer and driving my old car. But Lawrence, he spent 30 years in prison. He, he was given about $10,000 worth of fines. I forget, I think he owed $6,000 when he got out. Now, if you don't pay those fines, you go back in. And that's why I forget the name of the guy who he was pulled over for a broken taillight and he ran and they shot and killed him. That's because there are warrants for your arrest if you can't pay those fines that they impose on you. And everything now, I mean, if you want to have a deathbed visit or you want to visit a funeral home with an immediate family member, you have to pay the overtime of the guards, which is hundreds of dollars, sometimes over a thousand dollars. So it's completely mercenary. And, and we have of our 2.3 roughly million people who are incarcerated, about a million work for for-profit corporations. It's quite big in California. So McDonald's makes their uniforms in prison. And it's great. It's a prison sweatshop. I'm talking about for the corporations. They pay them nothing. They don't have to pay into Social Security. They don't pay them for sick leave. If they attempt to protest the working conditions, they're immediately shipped off to solitary confinement. So it's become a tremendous business and politicians are taking money from the corporations that profit off of our carceral state. And I think it's always important to listen to the voices of prisoners. The Free Alabama Movement, for instance, which for 10 days called a prison strike in four prisons in Alabama, well, that cost the state millions of dollars to send in compensated labor because all of the work in a prison is done by prisoners. And so those who are incarcerated, we later had prison strikes in California, in Texas, that's what we have to do. That's what they argue correctly is the only effective form of pressure on the carceral state, and that is striking. And we have to support them on the outside because if they paid the minimum wage, our prison population would immediately shrink. Remember, 40% of the people in our prison population have never been charged with physically harming another person. And anecdotally, I would say roughly of the students I teach, anywhere from 20 to 30%, and, I, and these are people who have life sentences, did not commit the crime for which they're charged. So I think that in the short term is the most effective. In the long term, we have to transfer our focus from funding forms of control to funding human beings, to funding people. And that requires a kind of overthrow of the corporate state. So there are two goals, two responses, but the immediate one is to support 
those who are incarcerated, especially when they strike in every way possible. So Chris Hedges, you write in our class, you reference a number of works, historical works, both fiction and nonfiction. And I think Ryan was asking if you had um, a succinct list or any, any suggested readings around these subjects. Look at the bibliography. I don't put in books that aren't good. And if I quote a book, it's usually because I think it's worth reading. And there's a good bibliography in this book. I mean, I think all the important books, at least the ones that I know about, are in there. We have several other participants that have questions and comments. Michelle writes, Hi, Chris. Your lectures about mass incarceration have influenced me to join the Prison Correspondence Project based in Montreal. And this person writes to a prisoner in Florida. What should they be aware of about the correspondence? What else can be done to help those in prison? The first thing to be aware of is that it's read. (laughs) So someone is reading it besides the person you're writing. That's the most important thing. I would say the second thing is they're not their crime. They have paid if they have done something, not with money, but with their lives, with the loss of their friends and community. I learned very early on, I learned even before I went in, that you never ask about the crime because they have already kind of been branded. Society has frozen them in that moment, which could be decades earlier. And remember that, in fact, in prison, there are very few killers, and people in a prison are very wary. They keep their distance from them. I was telling my students about how, when I covered the war in El Salvador, the Salvadoran government troops didn't want to get killed, so they would take their M16s, hold it up over their head, and just spray uh, wildly so that you know, if people were shooting at them, they couldn't hit them. And somebody said, oh, well, that's exactly like a drive-by. Yeah, the other thing that's so appalling is that the government used RICO laws. So, well, I mean, for instance, Boris. Boris Franklin was in for 11 years. Well, what was he in for? Of course, he was basically a single dad raising his son. And he's in a room. There's about 11 people in the room. There's a drug deal. It goes bad. Somebody shoots someone else. Now, he didn't have a gun. He didn't shoot anyone. He wasn't involved in anything. But if you don't immediately call 911, everybody in the room gets charged, picked up. And, and so his son's life disintegrates. And tragically, when he gets out, his son's serving a four-year sentence in Trenton. And again, of course, mental health is a big issue because 25% of our prison population has severe mental illness. So that gets into the fact that we throw our mentally ill out on the street. And he had a cellmate who saw visions and was psychotic who beat him to death. Michelle also asks about some of the biggest challenges you have teaching in prison, both from students and prison administration. And also, this is kind of related to what you just said, also wonders how your experience as a war correspondent prepared you to teach. The prison administration, especially when we began, were very hostile, and they attempted to drive us away by just treating us really badly because they can disrespect you and you can't answer back. I mean, they would often treat us as if we were prisoners. Now, it's gotten a little better because as the college program progressed, for instance, East Jersey State Prison, maximum security prison, we have 140 students in the prison system, but we have several hundred who want to get in. Well, you can't get into the college education program unless you don't have charges, unless your disciplinary record is clean. So in fact, the program has inadvertently served as a kind of calming agent within the prison because people don't want to lose their chance to get into the college program. But initially, and, and then there was also the issue, class issue, because most of the corrections officers 
almost none of them have college degrees. They never had a chance to go to college. And there's this kind of anger that we're coming in and giving a college degree from a pretty prestigious university uh, to these people inside when they never had the chance. So yes, there's a lot of hostility. I often feel like I'm step and fetch it in there. I just got to grin and take it. Um, it's a little better now. Uh, but yeah, these are totalitarian systems. They operate on a whim. They often do things that have no logic just because they can. And it's also hard to get professors because academic departments don't reward you for teaching in a prison. They reward you for writing peer-reviewed papers and going to conferences and all the other stupid stuff academics do. And then because of the difficulty of getting to the prison, you've got to go early, you're not treated well, it's hard to retain professors. So that was the first question. What was the second? The topic that you were addressing a little bit earlier uh, when you were talking about being in El Salvador. I think the fact that I was around a culture of violence. I said to the class, if you shank someone in a prison, don't you know you just added a life bid? I mean, if you're going to get out in five years, you shank them. You just added how many ever years, uh, you know. And everybody in class said, oh, yeah, well, you know it, but it has to be done, et cetera. And when I finished the class, one of my students came up and said, look, everything you heard here is BS uh, because I shanked and killed someone in another prison. And the only thing I thought about was taking him out. And the next class I came in, one of the students said, well, I watched your face when he told you that and you didn't uh, seem, uh, it didn't seem to shock you or... I said, well, yeah, well, the world I come out of, you you all are amateurs. I've been in war zones where people kill every day. I've been with Serb militias and the FMLN and the Salvadoran military and the Iraqi Republican Guard, on and on and on. So I also think the fact that I've suffered the trauma that anyone who goes to war suffers, and I was 20 years in conflicts. And then I would think the third thing is that on the outer reaches of empire, you have the external expression of white supremacy. That's what empire is. It is about the racist subjugation of people of color and the theft of their resources, which is exactly what happens internally. So remember that you de-industrialize these urban enclaves and these people in the eyes of the corporate state are worth nothing. But if you put them in a cage, then they can generate 50 or $60,000 a year to corrections officers, unions, and people who make the array of torture implements, the restraint belts, the restraint hoods, the pepper spray, the boss chair, all this kind of stuff. So I think my 20 years on the outer reaches of empire laid bare the cruelty of empire and the nature of how white supremacy works outside our borders. So I had a kind of understanding because of that experience of how white supremacy had manifested itself in the lives of the communities that they lived in. So Chris Hedges, teaching in the prisons and having the students write about these visceral experiences, you know, at Project Censored, we've corresponded with prisoners for decades, and often they're seeking outside help or assistance, but other times they're just looking for literature, things to read. Sometimes we get books in, sometimes we don't, because as you said earlier, everything that goes in and out of there is checked and read and censored, and of course, censoring literature in prisons has been an issue for a long, long time. What are your experiences with your teaching? Have you ever experienced directly being censored for teaching? In oh, the yeah. The last course I taught before COVID, I co-taught it with Matt Taibbi. And the two books that were censored were one by Matt Taibbi and one by Chris Hedges. They had this bizarre experience of the professors teaching the class having their own books censored. 
They censored Matt Taibbi's I Can't Breathe, which is a very fine book on Eric Garner, but he uses Garner to talk about policing and social control, and it's all there. It's a really beautiful book. And then in my case, they censored the book I did with a cartoonist, Joe Sacco, called Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Now, they don't read the books, but they saw revolt in the title. There's nothing about it, mass incarceration in my book. And then, of course, they saw I Can't Breathe. So those two books were out the window. I have a really funny story. When I taught this course on conquest that Lawrence was in, and we read Open Veins of Latin America and Bury My Heart Wounded two of the students in my class organized a sit-down strike in the prison. And they were taking away their, they call them stingers. These are hot water coils, which are vital if you want to eat in your cell, heat up your coffee, heat up your soup, your ramen noodles, whatever it is. And they just decided they were all going to be taken. So they organized a sit-down strike. I had given them the syllabus, and I was speaking at the University of Montana, and I said, well, I'm not here this week because I have to go speak in Montana. Well, that's when they organized the sit-down strike. So I was in Missoula or somewhere and got a phone call and said, this is the Special Investigation Division of the Department of Corrections of the state of New Jersey. Are you aware that your students just organized a sit-down strike? And I said, no. And they said, well, we think you're behind it. And I was called in and interrogated for five hours. In fact, my students thought I would never get back in the prison. But it was interesting. Before the strike, I had given them my truth dig stories, and they had cleared their cells of all of those articles because they knew the cells would be completely torn up and searched. Uh, and so the only thing the investigators had were the books that I was teaching. Well, I knew they hadn't read them. So I kept saying, yeah, but all of those books, it's all before the turn of the 20th century. There's not even anything, you know, and it was, and then the, if I had to hope they're not watching. I mean, the secret, having been a foreign correspondent, I've been arrested and interrogated by dumb cops all around the world. And there's two secrets, which all my students know. Just keep talking and be really dumb because it drives them nuts. So I said, strike. They said, yeah, stingers. I said, stingers. They said, yeah, stingers, you know, to heat water. I said, they don't have hot water? Yeah, they have hot water. I mean, it was this kind of, you know, long discussion. At the end of, of these five hours, and they did let me back in. I, I'll finish the story. But at the end, they said, well, of course, they're always trying to recruit you to be a snitch. So they said, well, you know, you can help us if you hear things. I said, yeah, yeah, well, I, I heard something. I Somebody told me that there was a gang member in my class. They said, really, really? They said, well, what does he look like? I said, he's black. At which point they'd had it, you know, with a do-gooder and the white liberal, I was out the door. But when I got back to the classroom, first of all, they all knew I was being interrogated. I don't know how. And they had all been interrogated and threatened, and they have so little. And they were all in shock. I mean, they couldn't speak. And it really was a window into the stress that they live under, the tremendous stress that they live under. It was complete silence in the classroom. And then finally, it was I think it was Lawrence or someone said, would you like a cup of tea? which remember in a prison, getting even a tea bag and a cup is difficult. And he comes back with a little tea bag and a styrofoam cup. I was very moving and very symbolic. Uh, but yeah, they're always trying to dream up ways to get rid of us. It is a kind of constant battle because there's a great deal of hostility towards any education program. That's just something if you teach in a prison, you have to deal with. Well, thank you for doing that. And thanks to everybody that teaches and spends their time committing their skills and teaching in prisons. Tom first says, thanks so much for this important KPFA event. Um, do you have anything that you would like to say about the governor of Oklahoma 
granting clemency to Julius Jones. The case was so transparent. This would have been the state murder of an innocent. Not that the state doesn't routinely murder innocent people, but it was just so transparent. I think, you know, he finally had to cave. Jason asked, do you and your students have any plans to further expand upon the caged piece that your students previously performed? And has there been any discussion regarding the possibility of translating the work into other performative media or mediums, cinema, streaming platforms, television, etc.? I can guarantee you some big corporate studio never going to produce this. No. I mean, it was such a laborious effort to get the play on stage and then get it published. I mean, that was my goal. People are free to use it any way they want. I'm not proprietary. They're not proprietary. We just want their voices to be heard. But I don't think any commercial medium would embrace it because it's obviously incendiary and dark in many ways and a fierce condemnation of the systems of control that have destroyed their lives. Sherry asks, who are the biggest manufacturers in the prison industrial complex in the U.S. that benefit from this kind of cheap labor? You mentioned McDonald's. Of course, we we all know Victoria's Secret. There's a long list. I mean, it's kind of remarkable. Hewlett Packard, they're all in there. And prisons, again, are going to these corporations, say, you don't need to have sweatshop workers in Bangladesh make your stuff. We have sweatshop workers right here, and they can't organize. They're completely bonded. So there's a quite a long list of corporations that are on the inside. Can you contrast the European approach or Scandinavian approaches to incarceration for crimes Or is the foundational problem racism and classism in the United States? What could, quote, reasonable or productive incarceration look like? It's the difference between retribution and rehabilitation. I was in, I guess it was in Wagner, in one of these prisons, they fired the social workers so they could hire 50 more guards. All the programs are gone. The vocational programs, they're all gone. It's completely punitive. So if you look at, especially at Finland and some of these countries, It is seriously about rehabilitation, which entails therapy, entails training, entails humane living conditions. I mean, 80,000 people, as I speak, in this country are in solitary confinement, and solitary confinement will drive you insane. And then what they do is drug you up. So they give you psychotropic drugs, and you're just, you sleep all day. And then eventually you get the shakes, and that's how they deal with it. They kind of want to push rebellious prisoners into solitary force them to have a mental crisis as an excuse to stuff them full of drugs that turn them into zombies. I mean, what's so fascinating about this play is that it happened, everything in the play happened to someone in the play, including stories that you just can hardly believe. Like one of my students who is locked into Trenton, the first night he's locked into Trenton, one of the guards come up and tells him that's, that was his father's cell. But, you know, there was a strong political component to this play, a consciousness about what happens to black bodies uh, in America. The passages about solitary confinement, which were based on the experiences of one of my students who was locked away for a year for having a contraband cell phone that had been sold to him by a guard. Another one of our participants this evening says, Chris, in 1994, I was asked by the California Prison Focus 
to publish poems, drawings, and essays sent to them from men in the first maximum security prison to deliberately use sensory deprivation routinely as a control mechanism. They named it Extracts from Pelican Bay. It's found its way into university and public libraries in 14 countries in Europe and the Americas. Sensory deprivation is a common practice. What they will do is they call it a dry cell. They put you in a cell that has no running water and they do things like turn the heat up so it's really hot and then they'll make it really cold. They will keep the lights on all the time. And a dry cell means that anytime you want water, including use it in the bathroom, you have to ask for water. They often won't turn on the water. A sensory deprivation, once you get into solitary, is common practice to break prisoners in solitary. Another one of our participants asks, why did the inmates want the guard to be black? Because they thought it was just too easy to make him white. And they wanted to say that once you serve that system of oppression as a guard, you're not more sensitive towards those on the inside because you're black. In fact, they argue, oftentimes because of black corrections officers are distrusted by white corrections officers, and that racism exists within the community of corrections officers. So in one prison, they have a guard's dining hall. And in one prison, the black officers all sat at one table by themselves. The white officers sat at the other tables. The black officers came in one morning and they put three special K boxes all back to back, KKK, on the black officers' table. Susan asks, with or without the holidays ahead, is it possible for the public to send gifts into prisons to be shared across the population? Some of the things that you were saying, like everyday useful items like tea or toothpaste, etc. That used to be the case, but it is no longer the case. I think it was like every five weeks or something, you could send a package with clothes and food, but they've taken that all away because now they want you to buy their overpriced garbage on the inside. I mean, one of the things that happens when students are released is the last time they fleece them, they're forced to buy these clothes that don't fit. I mean, the pants fall down, big baggy shirts, they have to buy it. It's so predatory now, at least within New Jersey, and I assume other prisons. Anne asks, what kind of content from the play was considered unacceptable to be read in front of the prison warden administration? All the stuff from Audrey Latula. I'll read you a passage. This is Audrey, the old revolutionary, speaking to the younger Omar. The state created the whole for us revolutionaries back in the day. They had to keep us from the rest of the population, and they had to break us. They couldn't let us preach resistance. They refined all their torture techniques in the 60s on the Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, the Puerto Rican Independence Movement, and the American Indian Movement. Today, they add Islamic militants, jailhouse lawyers, gangbangers, and political prisoners to the list, but they hate us the most. We know what they don't want you to know. We know the control of black bodies been seamless, from slavery to black codes to convict leasing, to the Jim Crow laws, to the so-called war on drugs. We know promotions, quotas, money from the feds, the money they take off of us is what makes prisons a business. A body ain't worth nothing on the street, but once inside, once you locked in a cage, you're worth 50,000 a year. To all those prison contractors, food service companies, phone companies, medical companies, and prison construction companies, and they gotta keep them cages full if they're gonna make their money. 
And once you get out, once you've done your time, they make sure you got no job, no food stamps, no public housing. So you end up right back in where you can make them some more money. People say the system don't work. That's because they don't get it. The system works just the way it was designed to work. Inside, you meant to be a slave. You forced to work for a dollar a day. You call the New Jersey Bureau of Tourism. You're talking to a prisoner at the Edna Mahan Correctional Institute for Women who's making 23 cents an hour, no ability to negotiate wages, working hours, or working conditions. And the state don't want that kind of consciousness. The state knows the power of ideas. But I don't ask them what's fair or not fair. They want to destroy us. We want to destroy them. Fair has nothing to do with it. We still have hundreds of black revolutionaries, our prisoners of war, our political prisoners in cages all across North America, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Sundiata Akoli, Mutulu Shakur, Imam Jamil Alamin, Jalil Abdul Muntakim, Seiko Ondinga, Abdul Majid, Tom Manning, Bill Dunn, and Leonard Peltier. Almost no one remembers we exist. The state done erased our memory, but we survive even in here because we have a purpose. We know our history, which means the history and persecution of our people. We got a community even inside these walls. We got the spiritual and physical strength to face captivity and death, and that means we're always free. And that's almost verbatim from the transcript that I gave them from Audrey, who was a remarkable man and resisted. He refused to wear the prison uniform, even going naked. He told all the runners to stop doing the bidding of the guards. Uh, that was their job. When they put snitches on his tear, fires would materialize in those cells until there were no snitches. And he kept himself sane by having imaginary conversations with George Jackson, who he said he could sometimes, as if George Jackson was sitting in the cell with him, and by making collages of really powerful political art, many of which he's given me. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges, thanks so much for spending the evening with us. I know everyone here is grateful, and we had a lot of fantastic questions and comments. People can read your work at Shearpost. They can also see your show at RT America on Contact. Again, this evening's event has been Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. That's Chris Hedges' latest book. You can also get the play Caged at Haymarket. So Chris Hedges, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.